So I want to tell you a story about a time I was in Guatemala, uh, the town we go to, San Miguel Chica. So one day years ago, there was this dog. And uh, dogs there really aren't pets, so the dog didn't have an owner. So the dog, at the end of the day, didn't have, like, Purina dog chow filling a bowl waiting for him when he came into the house. They're stray dogs. So the dog had had a very active day. was really hungry for supper. Man, it's supper time, right? Time to eat. The dog was so hungry. So the dog sees this cat, like, 30 feet away. So apologies to cat lovers. The dog sees the cat. The, the dog thinks, there it is. There is my supper. So the cat, fortunately for the cat, uh, has some sixth sense, looks over, sees that look in the dog's eyes. The cat takes off. So the dog takes off after the cat. They run and run and run. They go up one street, down another. I only saw bits and parts of it because I'm not going to run after him. I'm just sitting in the plaza watching this. Cat decides, what's well, market day, so the cat's going to go into the market area thinking I can ditch the dog this way goes under stall after stall after stall. Guess what? The dog follows the cat, tipping over a number of stalls. They do this for literally 30 minutes, and then the dog gives up. So fortunately for me, the dog comes out and just collapses maybe 10 feet from where I'm sitting in the plaza. So I ask the dog. I say, what's the deal? Why'd you give up? The dog said this. The dog said, I was running for my supper. The cat was running for its life. Good story, huh? <laughs> Not true, of course, but you can envision that kind of thing happening. So point of the story is it's all about motivation. So my goal is to motivate you to read and study what Ryan referred to as the 12. That doesn't mean read them separately, which is what we're used to, but actually try in the next few weeks, maybe this fall, to read it as an entire unit. And what we should do is both. Read them individually, which again is what we've done in past years, if you've been a Christian for years or decades, and try something you maybe have never done, which is read them as a single book. So I can even press the dog-cat analogy a little bit further, make a little more use out of it, and say God's word is our daily meal, our supper, and it's our life. Not so much that we're saved by black and white words on a page. We're saved by what the word little w leads to, which is the word uppercase w, Christ himself. So, uh, with that said, I'm going to read a little bit from the Minor Prophets for you. So, this is from the end of Hosea, chapter 14. And what I'm going to read here is going to be a description, a metaphor, of how Israel is like a lush garden or land that produces good crops. So, Hosea 14, starting at verse... Uh, four. So, end of the book of Hosea. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. 
His beauty shall be like the olive, his fragrance like Lebanon. Verse 7, they shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. So now one more passage. End of Amos. So Amos chapter 9. The one from Hosea I just read said that Israel is going to be like a flourishing land or a lush garden. This passage in Amos chapter 9, I'll start at verse 13, is going to be a little bit of a different metaphor. This is going to say the land itself, when God comes to renew it, will be a lush garden. So Amos chapter 9, verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Uh, End of verse 13, The mountains will drip sweet wine. All the hills shall flow with it. Verse 14, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them in their land. They shall never again be oppressed out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. So one of many of these great Uh, fruits that are going to grow will be wine uh, or grapes that produce wine in abundance. So this is going to happen in the day of the Lord. If you were there Sunday, Asher gave us kind of a brief introduction to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is when God visits earth uh, both in judgment and for his people in salvation, not to save them from their sins, but kind of a different layer of salvation, saving them more from the power or even the presence of sin in their lives. So God visiting the earth, the day of the Lord. Is there one day of the Lord or are there more than one? Answer is yes. There's one day of the Lord, capital D, future to our time. The end of history as we know it, we call it the second coming of Christ. Was there a sense, a foreshadowing day of the Lord when he came the first time? Yeah, there was. And occasionally the prophets will call things like uh, the destruction of Babylon or before that when Babylon came to destroy Israel, a day of the Lord. So think of those as like a little D day of the Lord. God, through someone else in this case, uh, executes judgment and some measure of salvation. So we just read about wine in abundance. The prophets are talking about day of the Lord, capital D, You tell me, did that happen? I guess it's yes, or otherwise I wouldn't be asking it. So you know when a teacher asks a question and it's kind of an understood yes. Did that happen at Christ's first coming? We know the answer is yes because I just told you that. You tell me, where do we read about that? A lot of wine. And it's a good thing. People aren't getting drunk by it. The wedding of Cana, John chapter 2. So I think it's pretty clear if you had a knowledge of the minor prophets uh, because of the passage we read, also at the end of Joel, in more than one place, actually in three or four places, we read about uh, when Messiah comes, there's an abundance of wine. The hills drip with sweet wine. That if you know your minor prophets, you're going to think, is this God himself come to rule the earth? Well, it is and it isn't. 
It's not the day of the Lord, capital D, but it is a day that God himself comes to the earth. He just doesn't come to renew it and, and introduce the new heavens and the new earth yet. We know, in retrospect, he's coming to die for our sins. Or, Ryan read this passage, Day of the Lord, capital D, is going to be a day when the sun and its light is blocked out. Did that happen at Christ's first coming? Once again, teacher asks, answers yes. Uh, when? At the cross. So I'm loving this inversion of the skipping stone thing because whatever happened at the cross where we know the sun was literally blackened, that's going to happen, we would guess, 10, 20, 30 times over at the end of history as we know it. There are going to be big things happening when Christ comes the second time. So let's dive into our notes. Uh, this would be basically, like I said, an encouragement for you to read the Minor Prophets together. So look at 2.1. This is what that book, book singular, would have looked like for someone in Old Testament times or Jesus' day. They didn't have books like we did with a, a back, either sewn or glued together. They had scrolls. So this is a way of saying there was one scroll, not 12. Hence, like Ryan said, called the 12. One book, think of it as one book of 12 chapters. They didn't even, when they got to say Joel, have Joel in big, bold, black, of course, Hebrew, not English letters. They would simply skip a line. We'd call it, put a line space or two in. Well, how do you know if you're in Joel or if you're in Jonah? Well, it's easy. That first verse is going to tell you, right? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying. So there's a sense in which you don't need the big, bold things at the beginning. So I love reading novels. I like reading biography, which I guess is nonfiction. I love reading fiction. Let's say I've got a novel of 10 chapters. I guess that I mean chapters are kind of long. Now, if I'm sitting in my favorite chair in the living room, uh, you know, got my favorite drink by my side, it's evening, grandkids are gone, I've got some great alone time to read. Is this the way I read a novel? Do I read one chapter, and I read that one chapter, let's say, in 15 minutes, and then I say, okay, that chapter did have a natural close to it. It kind of wrapped a few things up. It also looked ahead to the next chapter. Uh, I got to stop now. No, I never read like that. I say, man, I've got an hour. Again, grandkids are gone. Uh, I'm going to read on to chapter two and three, and maybe I'll get through four chapters by the time my hour is up, and then I've got to go do something else. Uh, but it's more an idea of reading continually, even if, again, that chapter one has some kind of natural close to it. Uh, maybe another equivalent would be binge watching a TV serial, which... Um, we don't do, but, you know, I understand younger generations like to do that. Uh, yeah, that can be abused like you watch, I don't know, 20 episodes in a row and you spent 10 hours watching TV instead of doing something maybe more productive. But same idea. Each TV episode is going to wrap something up and it's going to look forward to something else. It's going to leave a few things untied that you'd like to see tied up at some point in the future. I'm encouraging you to read the 12 like that. Uh, as an encouragement... Uh, here's what I can do to help you. So I took uh, all 12 minor prophets, 
ESV, the version we read from here in the pulpit, uh, copied and pasted into one document, took out all of the subject headers, like judgment on Israel in big, bold English letters, got rid of those, kept the chapters and the verses in, uh, took out the Joel in big, bold English letters to do it like the Hebrew scroll. So instead of one line space, I would do several. So you can see like two inches between Hosea and Joel. Okay, I know I'm on to a new book now, but we're going to think of it as a chapter. And printed it all up. So now I can read through this like I read through a novel. Maybe I'll stop halfway or a third of the way. Maybe I'll have time to read the whole thing. And I'm going to take my highlighter or my pen and mark certain things. You'll know you need to really read through something two or three or four times, right? Because you might read through it the first time, and toward the end, you're getting the sense of, oh, I know I've read about this term or this topic a couple books ago, but I didn't know it was going to come up repeatedly, so I didn't mark it when I first came across it. Now I'm coming across it in Zechariah and Malachi, and I, I know I've read that before. I'm going to make a little note on my first page, you know, Renewal of the land, you know, parentheses, things like grapes or grain. Uh, and when I go back in a month and read through it again, I'm going to look for that. So by my second reading, I'll have everything marked in whatever, you know, yellow that has to do with the land being renewed as a picture of God's coming. So uh, email me if you'd like this. You can always change it to, you know, the font you want and the size of font, things like that. Um, if you'd rather read it in another translation, well, then you've got a few minutes of, maybe more than a few minutes of, of copying and pasting your translation in. But we're much better than in the 1970s. I first heard of this idea in the 70s when I was in college. Uh, InterVarsity did it on college campuses. I've heard of a lot of ministries doing the idea. Same thing. So it may not be original with them. But then you'd literally have someone type up with a typewriter. I think you guys know what that is. <laughs> Even if you've seen pictures. Uh, They'd literally have to look at, say, the book of Philippians, type up, and, you know, double, spa double, yeah, double space it, give lots of room, uh, take out again any of the headers, um, even take out paragraphs. So you just look at each page would be double spaced, you know, a full page. Uh, maybe that's, I don't know, 14 pages, then duplicate it, give it to their Bible study, and send their, the kids home saying, Take your highlighter, take your pen, start marking it up, read through it two, three, four times. Next week, let's talk about just pages one through three of our 14-page handout. Tell me what you come up with. So do that with the minor prophets. So let's go on to 2.2. Uh, these are just a few ideas of what you'll come across when you try that exercise. So a few things to be looking for to give you a little bit of a head start. So again, you don't even have to read through it once and then say, oh, I hardly have anything marked or highlighted, but I've got a whole bunch of ideas on my little notepad of things to do my second time around. Let me give you a little head start and tell you a few things you can look for, but you should find many more things than I'm going to mention. One is that you could look for things like the name of David. So look at this kind of V diagram here. We know there was a first David, a first Jerusalem, and a first temple, the one Solomon built. Then we've got the divided monarchy. Man, that's not good. You've got exile. That's the worst thing that could happen. But then you've got return to the land and a look forward to 
hope that is given by the prophets for a new David that will come. And in time, a new Jerusalem, and in time, a whole different temple on a much bigger level. Think again of the inverted skipping stone analogy. So the minor prophets give us hope for these three things. So one thing would be look for those three as you read through the minor prophets. Uh, Next section. This isn't so much something to look for. Uh, It's just maybe a little side note. It's a different way of organizing the prophets by the time in history that each one wrote. I put the major prophets in parentheses. Um, I put three dots after Isaiah uh, and Jeremiah because they tend to prophesy through more than one era, not just before an exile, but even during an exile with Jeremiah. And in Isaiah, he looks forward to centuries after the time that he physically dies and gets buried. So you'll see most of them are before the Assyrian exile. Uh, I've put that as a sharp mountain because that's a time of crisis, right? A foreign power comes in. They don't worship Yahweh. They're going to kill the Israelites in the north and try to destroy their kingdom and, and exile them. So a lot of prophets prophesy right before and in light of a major crisis. Assyria is coming. This is what we've got to do. You've got a few that do that before the Babylonian exile. You have some major prophets that prophesied during the exile. And you've got three, Brian called them post-exilic, helping us learn that term, exilic. Uh, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, after the exile. So here's the interesting little side note here. The prophets seem to be clustered around crises. So what's neat here is, do you and I go through crises or suffering? And the answer is yes, and if it's no, we certainly know someone, a family member, a friend, a coworker, that is going through having learned about terminal cancer or having lost a child uh, at a very young age for the child or going through what looks to be an upcoming divorce when the husband or wife, uh, that's the last thing in the world that they want or had planned on. So if the prophets prophesy around crises and tell us what we should do, not everything's gonna be applicable, but we will be able to glean some help as we look at and go through crises. All right, final two pages. I'm going to move back now to giving you some ideas about things you can look for. And in 2.4, trying to show you there's an order and intentionality to the way this book, remember book singular, for their time a scroll is laid out. It's not just laid out chronologically. There's a lot of thematic and topical order to what God has done here. So Hosea is the first one that functions as a great introduction because it's got to focus on marriage, covenant, uh, and commitment, especially Hosea chapters 1 through 3. It's almost an overview of the 12, infidelity, then restoration. Got some great closing passages in Hosea chapter 3 and um, some great stuff at the very end of Hosea in Hosea chapter 14. Uh, You might want to write down Hosea 6, 6, or, you know, HOS 6 colon 6. If I had to memorize one verse in Hosea, I'd memorize that verse where God says, I delight in what? Steadfast love, 
or in loyalty, depending upon your translation, or King James, maybe mercy. I, I delight in steadfast love rather than sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than the sacrifice of bulls. So Hosea is about, in large measure, what? Covenant relationship between God and his people. And a relationship that is from the heart, from the inside out. Hence, Hosea 6.6, 6, God cares about what's in here, not about what you do with your hands, like sacrifice an animal. Or we might say, go to church, get baptized, obey the Ten Commandments. Uh, what major prophet talks about that? I'll answer that for you. Jeremiah is one of the major prophets that talks about that in chapters 31 through 33, this idea of covenant and the heart being changed from the inside out and the fact that we can't change it on our own. But here's the cool thing. Hosea talked about that centuries before Jeremiah did. So even though we always gravitate toward Jeremiah 31, 32, 33, in this progression of revelation, Hosea was actually the first one to talk about that idea on a developed level, like in detail, not mentioning it just in passing. The idea of covenant where the heart has to be changed and we as human beings can't change it directly related to the gospel, right? I mean, that is the gospel. God has to change our hearts from the inside out. He has to do it. We can't work to take care of our sins. We need Christ's substitutionary death. So who's the first one in the Old Testament that talked about that in a developed way? Hosea. And it is not coincidence that he starts the Minor Prophets with that thought. So Malachi ends the Minor Prophets. Let me tell you what Malachi is in large part about. Malachi is about a messenger paving the way for God himself, for the Messiah. We know that person is John the Baptist. So what a great way for the minor prophets and indeed the whole Old Testament to end, a great bridge to the book of Matthew and the introduction of John the Baptist after we have the birth of Jesus. One more thing to note on this page, and I've try to put an arrow here corresponding to the 12 boxes above. So from Joel to Obadiah, meaning after your intro, Hosea, the next three books talk about the day of the Lord. So in Minor Prophets, I want to say this is always day of the Lord, capital D. And yet we see a foreshadowing that in the first coming of Christ. We've already talked about that. And note that it's interesting that the last three prophets, the post-exilic ones, also go back to this idea of the day of the Lord. So if you're reading through the 12 as one book of 12 chapters, you're in your comfy chair in your living room, you know, your favorite lemonade or iced tea or whatever or coffee at your side, this would be one thing to start marking up. When do I come across the day of the Lord? What do the minor prophets say about it? So one more page. Uh, there are also word pictures that don't bookend. We just looked at bookending, stuff at the beginning and end. There are themes, probably a dozen of them, that grow gradually through the 12. And I'm going to just give you two examples here. I think we've already mentioned them. The first one, I've already read you some passages of this, is this growing picture of fertile land and crops, uh, both of Israel and then of the renewed earth, what we call the new heavens and the new earth. Then, uh, 
Second, we've got, well, we haven't talked about this one. We've got a growing teaching on the nations, meaning all the people groups of the world. So looking for words like nations, not so much specifically named nations like Edom or Babylon, but looking for the nations like that word in the plural or peoples of the earth would be a synonym. That'd be another great thing to circle or highlight. Uh, Interestingly, the 12 start about the nations being judged, but ends up with the nations being saved. Of course, we know not every nation, every person within every nation, but representatives of every nation coming to God. And it ends up in Malachi, which if you look at that little final paragraph says that three times we've got this phrase, my name, God's name, will be great among the nations. And then another two times where there's a similar phrase. So think of all the nations in Malachi and what are they going to know? Or at least representatives from all the nations, they're going to know God's name. If you knew Malachi... If you know how your book ends, then you hear Jesus saying this in his commission to the church. Go and disciple, what's the fill in the blank there? All the nations. And we're going to teach them according to some book or some human philosopher. Nope, we're going to teach and baptize them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So you've got two strong links with the book of Malachi. All the nations, and they need to know Yahweh's name, more specifically, the Father, Son, and Spirit. We didn't get that Trinitarian formula in Malachi. We do in what Jesus says. So a whole bunch, dozens, maybe hundreds of great links between what we read in the Gospels And what we know about the gospel in general, the heart from the inside out, and what the minor prophets teach.